today on Against of the Grain. Who were the Jacobins? What did they want? What did they achieve? And how should they be judged? I'm CS. We'll represent a conversation with Micah Alpa about the Jacobin clubs during the French Revolution. Coming right up. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is C.S. Song. Jacobins were Democrats. Jacobins were terrorists. Jacobins were libertarians or dangerous radicals or callous butchers. Widely differing assessments of the Jacobins and their leaders have been advanced over the decades and centuries, leaving one, or leaving at least me, to think, who were the Jacobins really? What did they believe in? What did they accomplish? And why did they turn toward terror? I recently spoke with Micah Alpa about his new book, Friends of Freedom, The Rise of Social Movements in the Age of Atlantic Revolutions. Well, Micah is, perhaps first and foremost, an historian of the French Revolution. His first book was Nonviolence in the French Revolution, and his volume, The French Revolution, A History in Documents, came out last year. Two meaty chapters of Friends of Freedom are about the rise and fall of the Jacobins in France. Micah agreed to talk with me specifically about the Jacobins, and when he and I connected recently, I asked him about the beginning, the origins of the Jacobin Club in Paris. Now, I should say that the Estates General was the representative assembly summoned by the French king in 1789, and the third estate comprised the commoners, the people who were not clergy or nobility. The main predecessor to the founding of the Jacobin Club was the Breton Club that was founded at Versailles at the beginning of the Estates General. And it became one of the main uh, lobbying forces for helping push the cause of the Third Estate and helped lead to things like the formation of the National Assembly, the Tennis Court Oath, and eventually the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen. But by fall 1789, the Breton Club had reverted into being kind of a provincial caucus for deputies from the western province of Brittany. So the main foundational event for what became the Jacobin Club Network, as I argue in Friends of Freedom, is a letter that was received from the London Revolution Society, a fairly small and peripheral group in London reform politics, particularly made up of Protestant dissenters who were looking to have the restrictions on their uh, ability to vote and hold office repealed so they could be members of parliament. They wrote to uh, France's National Assembly and said that they could see the aurora of a beautiful day in which the two nations could place aside their differences and contract an intimate liaison due to their common enthusiasm for liberty. And only a short number of days after that, Paris founded its own Société de la Révolution, taking the London Revolution Society's own name, which only a couple months later became known as the Society of the Friends of the Constitution. And um, it took the nickname of Jacobin Club because it met in the monastery of the Jacobins where they were renting space just a short number of blocks from the National Assembly. And over the weeks and months after that, they began to seek affiliates. Their rule was that there could only be a single affiliate per town. Um, But soon, dozens and eventually hundreds and even thousands of different localities formed their own Jacobin clubs, giving them an incredible uh, network for direct action across the French nation. What positions did the Jacobins take that set them apart from other political groupings? The Jacobins wound up taking different identities as the revolution itself progressed. 
So they had started out as being a radical group in 1789 during their Breton Club phase, but the Jacobins principally saw themselves as a place where people could come together and try and reach a consensus on the principal issues that the revolution faced. Um, they believed that consensus was something that was natural and that everyone who was participating without reservation ought to be able to get on board behind what the average French person thought about given issues. But the corollary to that was that they believed that anyone who held out after that consensus had been reached um, was doing so for their own selfish reasons. This is usually seen as having been drawn from Rousseauian philosophy. So whereas the Jacobins initially were something of a center-left grouping, they saw themselves as being the friends of the Constitution and wanted to support it. Over the course of time, they started to take more and more extreme positions, in part because of their anger against the different, more conservative groups that started to drop out of Jacobin Club membership. Groups like the Foyants in 1791 and the Girondins in 1793. What sorts of people joined, were allowed to join these Jacobin Clubs? That depended somewhat on which Jacobin club one refers to. So the Paris organization was relatively elite-based. So Paris during this era was a city of about 700,000 people, only several hundred of whom could comfortably fit into the meeting hall of the Jacobin monastery. But the Paris Jacobins did do a good job coordinating with the popular society network across Paris that was connected with the districts and then, as they were later known, uh, sections, 48 different uh, neighborhood local governments that together governed the, the revolutionary capital. When you look at the provincial Jacobins, by contrast, it's a bit more of a mixed bag. If you're looking at large cities like Lyon or Marseille, you can oftentimes find a, fair, a fairly elite grouping like what you have in Paris. But especially by the First Republic, there were many Jacobin clubs in local villages where even uh, the, the humblest artisans and farmers were getting directly involved and uh, sometimes writing to the Paris Club and the principal figures of the revolution themselves. You note in your book, Friends of Freedom, that the Jacobin Club network expanded rapidly in late 1789 and the first half of 1790. You write that never before in either France or Britain had a political club network acquired such scope or power. Many of the movements that I chronicle in my book actually began rather small. The Sons of Liberty, for instance, back in the lead up to the American Revolution, only had a couple dozen uh, affiliated organizations over the course of its first year. The Jacobins, by contrast, quickly established a national network, and in part because there already was such enthusiasm, even euphoria, for the changes that the French Revolution was bringing in, French people really were interested in getting directly involved in the political process. There were a series of elections for a whole array of municipal and state-level positions that had always been appointed in the past. But even after those were filled, people wanted to be consistently involved. They wanted to be debating both local and also national issues, and they wanted ways of getting their voice directly heard. If you formed a local Jacobin club, you could begin corresponding directly with the Paris branch and oftentimes get responses from the very people making the decisions. So the Jacobin Club, especially early on, seemed to represent what was new and exciting about the French Revolution, and thus really fired the imagination of many revolutionaries across France. So it sounds, Micah, like 
initially the Jacobins were not revolutionary in the sense that they wanted to dismantle the monarchy, correct? That's correct. Um, indeed, there were almost no uh, Republicans in the, the, the modern sense in France in 1789. France had been a monarchy ever since the uh, early Middle Ages. Um, most people didn't think that it was pragmatic to try and abolish the king straight off. But as the revolution progressed and there became more and more issues between the aristocratic counter-revolutionaries and the revolutionary factions that the, the Jacobins saw themselves as representing, um, there came to be a break. Yeah, and what did the aristocrats and what did the monarchy, what did the king, Louis XVI, do to turn the Jacobins in a more radical direction? What what did they uh, dislike and really detest in terms of the actions taken by the people they thought were counter-revolutionary? The Jacobins believed that they were working out a new constitution that could govern France for the foreseeable future, one in which the monarchy and even to an extent the nobility would get to keep uh, most of their property and at least some of their honorary privileges, but one in which most of the actual governing of the country was to lie with the elected National Assembly. So they were not sympathetic to those who wanted to reinstall an absolute monarchy as had existed in France before 1789. The main break that occurred was around the flight to Varennes, in which the king uh, wrote a long letter uh, before he tried to flee the kingdom, um, saying that everything that he'd done over the previous two years had been without his free consent. And indeed, he specifically mentioned popular societies like the Jacobins as having led the revolution down a path towards uh, demagoguery and mob rule. So after the king was then caught um, and returned to Paris, the Jacobins became one of the main leaders of the first Republican movement that tried to get the king at least suspended and were even interested possibly in overturning the throne. This actually led to a split within the Jacobins between its more uh, moderate and radical factions. The moderates became known as the Foyants and actually tried to take away all of the Jacobins' uh, provincial affiliates from them. But the, the Jacobins managed to persist. The, the king was reinstalled, but the Jacobins kept their network together. And then the following year, in 1792, as the war that came to engulf most of Europe over the French Revolution got going, they were able to become one of the principal voices calling for the monarch's removal. The international dimension of the French Revolution is often ignored or not recognized by you know people who aren't familiar with uh, the history of that uprising of that revolution why was the king bent on having foreign powers invade france and how did the jacobins and robespierre in particular initially feel about the prospect of war the early French Revolution happened incredibly quickly for the people involved. It had probably never been Louis XVI's ambition to see things fall apart so dramatically so quickly and to see his own power um, taken away to such a considerable degree. Had the revolution continued down its path, it's quite possible that he would have been left with no more effective power than the mostly uh, figurehead British monarch that sat across the channel from him. So for a lack of a popular royalist movement in France that could have started a, a civil war or a political uh, electoral movement on his behalf, he began appealing to his cousins on the various thrones of Europe to come in and suppress the revolution by force. 
1792, there were considerable rumors that something was afoot, and some members of the Jacobins thought that it was best to meet the threat head-on, that they should preemptively declare war on the crown heads of Europe, and indeed they hoped that the different peoples beyond France's borders would wind up rising up and fighting with them, since they were going to be fighting the, the last war, one that would bring about universal freedom as they saw it. Not all of the Jacobins believed that this was going to work out that way, as Robespierre himself famously orated, uh, no one loves armed missionaries. But nevertheless, uh, voices like Robespierre and also Jean-Paul Marat, one of the uh, more violent writers of the revolution who nevertheless thought that the war was a trap, um, they were outvoted. And once war began, Robespierre and his followers believed that they needed to back France to the hilt, that there would be little alternative going forward than either uh, radical attempts to uh, implement freedom on the one hand, or otherwise reverting to the despotism of the old regime. I'm CS. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Micah Alpa joins me. He teaches history at the University of Central Missouri, and he is the author most recently of Friends of Freedom, The Rise of Social Movements in the Age of Atlantic Revolutions. You referred to uh, the Jacobins looking abroad, hoping that revolutionaries in other European countries would forward, would advance the cause of freedom that the Jacobins saw themselves advancing in France. Uh, talk about that sense of possibility. You, you call it in your book the ecstatic sense of possibility harbored by the Jacobins as the revolution proceeded. Yes, the French revolutions believed that they were creating a radical new regime, not just for themselves, but for all the peoples of the world. And this was very different from the revolutions that had come before it. Earlier British and American movements for liberty largely undertook those movements because they believed that they were freeborn Englishmen, that it was their uh, privileges that they had cultivated ever since the Magna Carta, or even further back, that gave them the seeming right to liberty. The French, by contrast, believed that um, it would only take weeks or months of tutelage um, and organizing for people to be able to overthrow uh, their regimes and uh, adopt a course of action very similar to what France had put together so quickly since 1789. So in Great Britain, there were movements like the London Corresponding Society that started to affiliate artisans, uh, shopkeepers, and other common people together in a sort of mass movement. In Ireland, the United Irishmen arose that sought to overcome divides between Catholics and Protestants, and indeed uh, city dwellers and uh, farmers as well, um, believing that all, or at least most people who didn't have a vested interest to the contrary, could get on board with this new democratic spirit and um, forcibly implement a new order of things. Let's talk about the Jacobins' relationship to legislative bodies in France, and there certainly was more than one during the French Revolution. The National Assembly was created by representatives of the Third Estate, which is the, the, the commoners, uh, people who are not clergy and nobles in France, in 1789, uh, after they defied the king. So they defied the king who called the Estates General, and uh, these representatives, who I understand were respectable upper-middle-class folks, so this is not, um, you know, who we might think of as a common folk today, called themselves the National Assembly. So early on, the Paris branch of the Jacobins uh, developed a certain relationship with the National Assembly. What was that relationship? About one-third of the first National Assembly, either 
regularly or occasionally made their way to the Jacobin Club in the evening. There, they engaged in a combination of socializing on the one hand and uh, caucusing on the other. So at the evening sessions, people would oftentimes try out speeches that they planned to give sometime in the coming days at the National Assembly, and also tried to build consensus uh, around what direction things should move in, what issues were uh, mature enough um, to have a chance of passing, or conversely, what was still a bit too radical for the revolution to take on. For instance, at the Jacobin Club in February of 1790, there were debates over abolishing the slave trade, um, which unfortunately uh, did not wind up coming to pass because they didn't think they had enough votes to get the job done. Conversely, however, some really radical uh, changes did come out of Jacobin Club deliberations. Back during the Breton Club period at Versailles, for instance, it was at the Jacobins that significant debates occurred over a declaration of the rights of man and citizen, um, something that we still look back to as one of being the real touchstones for establishing universal human rights. Well, what should be said about the Jacobins' stance toward the anti-slavery cause over time? Because I think your book emphasizes that at least initially, the Jacobins or many people in the Jacobin clubs in France didn't see it as a, a priority, that other things took precedence. The French Revolution occurred at a really pivotal moment for the developing of modern abolitionism. So granted, the first abolitions of slavery occurred in the northern United States during the era of the American Revolution. And also from 1787 onwards, there had been uh, a massive British movement to abolish the slave trade, though not slavery itself. So during the early French Revolution, French people were starting to see abolition against slavery as part of what they needed to do if they were going to create a universal revolution for all people. But they also faced considerable opposition in that the uh, slave trade both in people and also in colonial products like sugar, coffee, and tobacco was one of the main drivers of the French economy. And remember, it disproportionately was upper middle class people, often those involved in overseas commerce, who were getting themselves elected to the French National Assembly. So the issue of abolishing the slave trade did wind up getting kicked down the road, but in 1794, conversely, France would become the first nation or empire throughout the world to comprehensively abolish slavery, albeit only largely because the slaves themselves had risen up in what would become the Haitian Revolution. And that was when the Jacobins held the reins of power when France abolished slavery throughout the empire, correct? That's right. So you mentioned the Girondins. Uh, it was originally, I believe, a group within the Jacobin Club, and it split off, and there developed a strong antagonism, enmity between the Jacobins and the Girondins. What differences did the Girondins at least initially have with Robespierre and the, the Paris Jacobin Club, and what were the goals of the Girondins? The Girondins had actually been some of the more popular and central figures in the Jacobin Club movement up through late 1792. One of their leaders, uh, Jacques-Pierre Brissot, who had been central in pushing for foreign war in spring of 1792. But by the fall, there had become both personality conflicts on the one hand, um, increasingly, members of the Jacobin Club started to see conspiracy everywhere. Um, they had already seen several earlier leaders like Mirabeau and Lafayette become traitors to the, the cause. Um, so, as a result, 
there became a, a major divide between Brissot and his followers on the one hand and Robespierre and his on the other. But also the Girondins became somewhat more moderate in their politics. As their name suggests, they were from the region around Bordeaux that was actually at the center of the overseas and slave trade. They were more free market liberals in terms of economics, whereas the Jacobin faction that wound up keeping uh, the Jacobin name were much more in favor of economic protections. They were much more closely allied with the Paris Sanculot, the common workers who felt they were being overcharged for the prime necessities of life. Thus, this protectionist versus free trade debate did a lot to fuel the Parisian uprising in late May, early June 1793 that wound up removing the principal Girondins from power. The Saint-Culotte, these were important actors in the French Revolution. As I understand it, they were artisans and tradespeople called what they were called because the men wore trousers rather than the breeches, the culottes of the wealthy classes. How radical were the sans-culottes in terms of their kind of social agenda? And what does it mean for, as you say, the Jacobins to ally themselves, at least for a time, very closely with this uh, group of people? The sans-culottes are oftentimes seen as representing the most radical of perspectives in the French Revolution, though certainly they were freely conversing with elite Jacobins who adopted much of their perspective and even their clothing style and copious use of profanity as well. Um, the sans-culottes wanted there to be fair opportunities for everyone, and also fair provisioning. They wanted there to be basically proto-socialist legislation passed so that they could still afford to get enough to eat. They wanted there to be a right to work in the positive sense of being guaranteed an opportunity to make one's living. And they also adopted a sort of elite Jacobin paranoia towards the motivations of uh, people who weren't um, radical Jacobins themselves. They had seen how the Girondins and so many other groups had turned against the core of the Jacobin movement. So they became useful foot soldiers for the Jacobins, first in expelling the Girondins from power, and then going against other groups and individuals who seemed to be falling out of the Jacobin consensus. Micah Alpa is my guest. He is Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Missouri. His books include Nonviolence and the French Revolution and The French Revolution, A History in Documents. His most recent book is Friends of Freedom, the Rise of Social Movements in the Age of Atlantic Revolutions. It's published by Cambridge University Press, and a good chunk of that book is devoted to specifically the Jacobins. Maximilien Robespierre, he was, he is a, a key world historical figure. We'll talk about the terror a bit later, but before the terror started, what should we know about him, his leadership style, and the the political priorities he set for himself and for the Jacobins. Robespierre was an unlikely figure to come to power. Granted, he had received an elite education at the Collège of Louis-le-Grand in Paris, but then he had gone back home to his small native town of Arras, opened up a legal practice, and never published anything or particularly distinguished himself until the French Revolution came along. But in 1789, like lots of other lawyers, he stood for election to the Estates General, got through, and when he made it to Versailles, he quickly gained a following as being someone who would stand by his principles, someone who seemed to be a true idealist when so many other people were turning out not to be. So 
1791, he had pushed for some solutions that seemed a bit out there still to people at the time, ironically including for the abolition of the death penalty in France. But um, as one of his uh, competitors, the uh, corrupt orator Mirabeau put it, this man believes what he says. He will go far. So as the revolution started to radicalize, people started to look to Robespierre as a sort of guide, as someone who would stick to his core conceptions of virtue and righteousness, regardless of what the price to be paid for following those would wind up to be. And what were those core concepts of virtue and righteousness? You talk about his idealism. What was he idealistic about? Robespierre believed that the French Revolution was going to bring about a new order of freedom for the world. He and some of his fellow radical Jacobins were amongst the first thinkers, much less politicians, to talk about democracy in a positive sense, that whereas previously elites had distrusted the populace and didn't think that they would come up with an enlightened solution about almost anything, Robespierre believed that the people were good. He wanted the sans-culottes as allies, and at least made it seem like he wanted them to have a real say in the political process. So, if true democratization and freedom was going to be achieved, he then believed that no price was too great to be paid in exchange for achieving that. That the, the French needed to work towards an ideal of virtue in which people would um, stand up for a, a sort of democratic goodness. Was Robespierre, based in Paris, was he able to maintain the allegiance of the proliferating Jacobin clubs outside of the capital? And I'm also wondering to what extent the Jacobin clubs around France were able to maintain, given their numbers, a unified, coherent position on you know, the key issues that mattered to the revolution. The Jacobins were a complex group in that they were supposed to encourage discussion on issues when they were initially introduced, but after the National Assembly decided something, they were supposed to be friends of the Constitution and go along with whatever that was. But on some issues, of course, it was easier to do that than others. And by mid-1793, there became a lot of political differences between those Jacobins that kept that name and those that became known as Girondins. Uh, the Girondins oftentimes didn't want all of the social welfare protections that the Paris branch and a lot of other places wanted to see enacted, particularly surrounding the price of bread and other foodstuffs. And after a, a bad fight in the National Convention led to several key Girondins being expelled, many of the local Jacobins uh, across the country wound up rising in revolt against the national authority in what became known as the Federalist Revolts of June um, and sometimes stretching into July and onwards of 1793. So maintaining unity was very difficult. But nevertheless, the Jacobins who retained that name managed to triumph, at least in the short term, in those conflicts. And from fall 1793 onwards, there is evidence that the Jacobins were operating with a significant degree of cohesion, even though there always remained the possibility of new splits and new conflicts to come. Well, speaking of 1793, in the middle of that year, how did Paris's Jacobins take over the reins of power such that they were able to, to call the shots? The Jacobin influence, and indeed Robespierre's so-called dictatorship of the year two, was a complex one in that it was never entirely official. Only about one-third of the members of the convention were members of the Jacobins, but nevertheless the Jacobins were the uh, most forceful of special interest groups. They came to dominate the Committee of Public Safety that served as the convention's executive branch, and the figure of Robespierre um, became such that 
very few people were willing to stand up against him. And those who did often found themselves being prescribed, imprisoned, and under the worst of the terror, even killed. The convention, you're speaking of the National Convention, the, the National Legislature at the time? That's correct. Between mid-1789 and fall of 1792, the National Assembly is the name for the legislative body governing France. After the fall of the monarchy, however, because they had to draw up yet another uh, constitution for a republic, they would take the name National Convention. So once in power or in a position of, of greater power, what did the Jacobins do to address rising food prices? That was a, a, a big issue at the time. To raise revenue, another big issue. To redistribute land, which is something I think the Jacobins uh, said they wanted to do, and to nationalize industries. Already in 1790, the National Assembly had nationalized the lands of the Catholic Church, which indeed were about 10 to 15 percent of all of the land across the country that they had accumulated over the course of centuries. This was used in part to pay down the huge national debt, which had played a central role in starting the French Revolution in the first place. But it also was used to uh, provide the base capital for a new paper currency that was supposed to ease commerce and also allow there to be a larger amount of governmental redistribution than there had been up until this time. In addition, by 1793, the Jacobins had become very concerned about the rising price of bread and uh, tobacco and other seeming necessities of life in Paris and throughout the country. So in September of 1793, they instituted the maximum, uh, a price ceiling above which bread prices weren't allowed to rise. And to make sure that peasants would bring their bread to market, they instituted a revolutionary army, um, a group that would essentially go and search to make sure that an excessive amount of bread wasn't being hoarded. So part of the problem that the Jacobins would run into is that a lot of the provisioning issues were zero-sum in the sense that the grain that needed to come to Paris needed to be taken uh, from other people who might either need it for themselves or have different financial interests at stake. So the Jacobins did their best to try and ensure a sort of fair shares for all, um, trying to get people the, the basics that they needed in life. And indeed, they also at one point would promise a positive right to work in which every able-bodied man um, would be given a job to get at least the basics that he needed to survive. But these programs were very difficult to get to work perfectly in that this was a time of both foreign and civil war and one in which there were a whole lot of provisioning shortages in part because of those conflicts. So, as you've alluded to, the task of weeding out potential subversives became a major preoccupation of the Jacobins. What sorts of actions did the Jacobins take in terms of identifying and taking action against perceived enemies of the revolution? At an elite level, this was an almost intimate process in that the Jacobins, in many cases, were turning against former club members, or at the very least, people that they had gotten to know and know well over the previous four or five years, and indeed had accomplished incredible things alongside of. But first, in their split with the Girondins, and then with later groups like the Ebertis and the Indulgence, Robespierre and his core followers came to believe that they had a view of the revolution that was antithetical to theirs, and that they might, in fact, be in league with the uh, counter-revolutionaries that surrounded France and, indeed, were trying to invade it and suppress the revolution by force. 
already many prominent revolutionaries, like uh, the Marquis de Lafayette, who had defected to the enemy Austrians, or the Count of Mirabeau, who had been found to be in the pay of the court, had wound up being not at all what they had appeared to be at first glance. So the idea was that these prescriptions might be terrible, but that they would be a small price to pay in exchange for a new order of liberty that the Jacobins promised would follow. Micah Alpaw is my guest. He teaches history at the University of Central Missouri. His most recent book is Friends of Freedom, The Rise of Social Movements in the Age of Atlantic Revolutions. I'm CS, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. So I think you were beginning to answer this, but were the fears of counter-revolution harbored by the Jacobins, were those fears justified? Were there royalists and nobles, military commanders and others bent on retaking power in France through violence and other means? Yes. Essentially, the French Revolution, from start to finish, had seen a series of counter-revolutionary plots, many of which had come fairly close to succeeding. As soon as the Bastille had fallen, the king's own brother, the Count of Artois, had gone abroad and started recruiting an army of aristocrats to invade the country and overthrow the revolution by force. Louis XVI had attempted to flee the country himself two years later, and was only stopped very close to the border. And from April 1792 onwards, the French Revolution had gone to war against the crowned heads of Europe. By mid-1793, there were no fewer than five different major nations and empires arrayed against them. The British, the Austrians, the Prussians, the Spanish northern Italy, and a host of other powers. All of this nonwithstanding, the Federalist revolts, the Vendée revolts of Catholic conservatives out in Brittany, and a host of other opponents. So the Jacobins were, as they saw it, doing the best that they could to hold the revolution together and not allow any of these different groups, either by active or covert means, to derail what they were trying to accomplish. What do you make of the argument that the army marching toward Paris from the north, if it had taken the city, would have installed its own terror, perhaps greater than that of the Jacobins? That, in fact, was the stated goal of the forces under the Duke of Brunswick, uh, both Prussians and Austrians in late 1792. They said that if one hair essentially was harmed on the heads of Louis XVI or other members of the royal family, they would enact an ever-memorable destruction, that Paris would be burnt to the ground. The later threat said that future generations would search the banks of the Seine, wondering where was Paris. So, while on the one hand, the terror looks very different from how European politics had typically functioned in the 18th century, or indeed really ever since the wars of religion that had ended in the mid-17th century. Once the provocation of the French Revolution had been uh, laid down and propagated across Europe, the counter-revolutionaries were willing to do just about whatever was necessary to put things back to the way that they were. So given what you're suggesting and saying about how the Jacobins used uh, more and more extreme measures against perceived subversives, and given what you're saying about how uh, some of the fears that they had about counter-revolutionary activity and counter-revolutionary threats were justified, how do we uh, make sense of you know, this notion that uh, the terror proves that the Jacobins were corrupt, that Robespierre was a callous butcher, really, which is the way mainstream history presents him. Um, what conclusions have you drawn about how the Jacobins should be judged based on what they did during the terror and 
why they did what they did during the terror. Indeed, that remains one of the central questions that French historians have continued to grapple with over the course of the last 230 plus years. On the one hand, the Jacobins seemed to promise so much and come so close to attaining it. Popular democratization, a certain measure of socialism, and an ubulant sense of not just French nationalism, but also universalism, a sense of universal fraternity that they and their revolutionary movement could bring all the peoples of the world together, at least in some alliance for progress. But the Jacobins, of course, did not in the end fulfill that vision. They remained in power in direct terms, little over a year. And after they fell, almost all of the Jacobins who had survived turned against what was left of the movement. Historians would say that there were a lot of aspects of the Jacobin movement that we'd be less better off emulating, their intolerance of dissent, their inability to accept even the possibility of a loyal opposition. But both many generations of French nationalists and also revolutionary internationalists as well have felt that they were justified in at least much of what they did because of the extreme wartime uh, situation in which they found themselves. So all in all, I think our verdict on the Jacobins has to be a mixed one. On the one hand, we can certainly uh, appreciate what they were trying to accomplish while also critiquing a lot of their very real shortcomings that made the terror uh, a basis for um, a lot of what we don't like to uh, see as central to the modern political tradition. In 1795, clubs and popular societies were declared dissolved. Was this the end of the Jacobin clubs? In a direct sense, yes. Counter-revolutionaries in Paris, particularly Muscadin youths, began uh, attacking Jacobin club members. And one night in fall of 1794, they threw enough rocks through the Jacobin Club windows that the club members were made to run out and essentially run the gauntlet through a hostile crowd. The Paris Jacobin Club closed and never reopened. Out in the provinces, it was a somewhat different story. Indeed, it wasn't until well into uh, 1795, about a year after Robespierre had fallen, that the final clubs were closed down. But in another sense, the Jacobin clubs and their spirit continued. There continued to be underground revolutionary societies across the coming decades. And some of these societies would help launch the second age of revolutions during the mid 19th century. Yeah, and these societies, these movements, later movements in other countries, when they emulated the Jacobins, did they focus mostly on the movement structures, the mobilization strategies, the communication networking fostered by the Jacobins? Or did they look to the radical political stances taken by the Jacobins? It was very much a combination of both. The Jacobins helped develop proto-socialist ideas that later generations of socialists and communists would take further. And also the Jacobin organizational model was key as well. Future generations were trying to organize either national or indeed international worldwide revolutions around their principles and having a series of corresponding societies. So groups where people could get together, socialize locally, but also have a national or international reach would provide the basis for groups like uh, Karl Marx's First International or indeed many other radical organizations to follow. 
Micah Alpaw joins me on Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. He teaches history at the University of Central Missouri. We've been talking about your research into the French Revolution, much of which is included in your new book, Friends of Freedom, The Rise of Social Movements in the Age of Atlantic Revolutions. Last year, you came out with a book called The French Revolution, A History in Documents. What is that book about? What does it do? The French Revolution in Documents is primarily designed for classroom use. It's a series of documents that I collected, some of which came out of Friends of Freedom. In fact, trying to capture the sense of possibility that the revolution brought and just how many different aspects of life were opened up for discussion and debate that had never had been before. The French did everything from uh, institute divorce despite being a staunchly Catholic nation, to indeed abolish Christianity by late 1793, early 1794. No aspect of life was too sacred or sometimes even too obscure to come under discussion, uh, debate, and see potentially major changes made to it. So the book, on the one hand, looks at a lot of the passionate political debates, but also it expands beyond a a narrow political chronology to show just how shocking and radical the French Revolution indeed was. Micah Alpaw, Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Missouri. His books include Nonviolence and the French Revolution, The French Revolution, A History in Documents, and Friends of Freedom, The Rise of Social Movements in the Age of Atlantic Revolutions. Uh, Micah, thanks for your work, and thanks for coming on our program again. Thank you very much, C.S. Been a pleasure. And that program first aired on January 18th of this year. And this is C.S. suggesting the important thing is not to stop questioning, and we hope you'll join us next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. You can visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio, resources, and more. You can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio, and you can follow us on Twitter at Radio Against.